Hello and welcome to Be the Serpent, a podcast of extremely deep literary merit, with your classy and sophisticated hosts, Alexandra Rowland, Freya Mask and Jennifer Mace. On today's episode, we're discussing the six books nominated for Best Novel on the 2019 Hugo Awards ballot. Hello and welcome to episode 38, a Hugo Award special, the novels of 2018. I'm Alex and I am four of six. No, three of six. I'm three of six. I'm Freya and I am four of six. I'm Macy and I, smugly, am five of six. Nobody is surprised. (laughs) (laughs) We are three redheaded fantasy authors. And that is how many of the novels on the Hugo Award slate that each of us has read so far. Uh, we have such an amazing slate this year, you guys. We oh really my gosh. Do. We really, really do. Uh, we're going to jump in. We're going to do like a little bit of a review if you haven't had time to read all of them yet. Uh, but before we do that, what have we been reading, fellow serpents? I am reading a book that I am definitely going to nominate for next year's slate. So this is The Luminous Dead mm-hmm. by Caitlin Starling. Have you heard much about this? A little bit, but tell us. Okay, so the pitch of it was The Martian Meets Annihilation, which I think is a really good pitch because it's essentially about one person. Well, it's about one person and the person who is on the other end of the line. So it's about a caver in a far off, like dead end planet who has been paid to go through this mixture of just underground and underground and underwater, my own personal nightmare caving system wearing a protective gear that essentially does everything for her feeds her disposes of waste so she can spend weeks and weeks and weeks in this suit and the person who is her support team is one person and it's about the relationship between these two women over the course of this very dangerous very mysterious very spooky trip further and further and further into this cave system it's got slytherins it's got a map at the front that is actually very useful because you're trying to th- – <laughs> it's the only time I'll say this about maps, but attempting to keep track of where this person is in this, like, three-dimensional underground mm. slash underwater cave system is very confusing. So the map is good. And I love it. It was a real page-turner. It's got heaps of tension. It's got, like, psychological dread. It has co-manipulation. I loved it. Uh-huh. Really, really good. I think you'll like it, Macy. There is glowing fungus. Yes, I Freya's pitch to me of this book, I think, was it has lesbians and weird fungi. Yeah. And I'm like, sold. That's, that's all you need sold. to say to Macy. Yep. Yeah. That's yep. that's fair. So yes. Lesbians, I, weird fungus. Lesbians <laughs> and weird fungus. Another book that I have read <laughs> since last recording is Prince of Air and Darkness by M.A. Grant. This is a fantasy romance. It's an M.M. Hmm. romance novel. And the, the pitch for this one is probably The Magicians Meets the Cruel Prince. So it's sort Hmm. of about fairy courts and blood promises and wars between different factions of fae, but it's also about magical creatures at university together. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it's delightful. I really really enjoyed it. And there's going to be a couple more books in the series about uh, some of the supporting characters and continuing on this sort of war between fairy courts story. So if there is a hole in your heart the size of magical boys being very dramatic and in love at each other, I recommend mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm. Yep. I, th- yes, that that yes. is that is Alex's entire 
That's all of, you need uh, to say to Alex, really. <laughs> there you go. So I've go. I've got one wreck for each of you, uh, and I've also uh, binged the last, the most recent season of Shit's Creek, which I have been watching on and off, and which I ha- think the only way I can sell this is by telling you that one of the main characters is the most disaster disaster bisexual I have ever come across in any media. Amazing. I'm just amazed yes. that he's bi. Yeah, and it's a it's a plot point early on that he does come across quite camp and gay, and most people assume that mm, he is mm-hmm. gay, and he's had some boyfriends who are biphobic, mm. and yeah, it's quite an interesting, uh, there's some really well-examined character notes in amidst all of the, like, silliness. It's a good, it's oh, a fun awesome. show. The only cool. problem is that I know the boyfriend of this character solely by the moniker Tiny Thumb Boyfriend. Yeah, that's because another supporting character is like, I don't trust him. He looks like a thumb. And then as soon as someone says that, you're like, oh my God, he does look like a thumb. (laughs) He's adorable, but also a thumb. This poor, poor fucking boy. Anyway. Anyway, Macy, what have you been reading? I have been uh, reading my favorite thing, which is fucky plant bullshit. Mm-hmm. Specifically, I finally got around to reading Born by Jeff Vandermeer, which is a post-apocalyptic story about these uh, two characters who are trying to survive in a world that's been torn apart by, like, biohacking to the point of almost, like, magic. Mm. There's all these sort of, like, weird beetles that will eat your memory and give it to somebody else. Uh, there's a giant flying bear the size of a building that half the population worships as a god, even though it frequently steps on them. Um, and then there's this, uh, like, blob of, like, alien being that the main character discovers and calls Born that sort of slowly grows up almost as her child and then starts eating people. And that's a challenge for her as, like, a I mother. <laughs> I feel like Vandermeer's career is that of someone just playing mad libs with the sentence fucky blank bullshit and just inserting whatever he has read about this week. That's fair. And I think that for me, this book was super visceral and one of the most convincing, like, desperate post-apocalypse atmospheres that I've read in a really long time. Like, these are people who... Definitely, like they're they're searching for any kind of biological matter that they can eat because so much of it has been corrupted and polluted and you really feel what that means to them. Mm. Um, And no one's, it's not a sort of backstabby post-apocalypse. Everyone's just trying to survive, but they do end up in conflict anyway. And I really enjoyed that part that like, no one was saying, oh, it's an apocalypse and thus we must fight each other, right? They didn't really, Mm. they wanted to work together, but like sometimes it just couldn't happen. Yeah, I do want to read some more Vandermeer. I really liked Annihilation, mm. and I think the atmosphere in that was one of the, the strengths. I love so Annihilation, I and I wish I could read the more. next two. I'm just sulking about the fact I can't find the covers that I want, and I will be sulking about that for a long time. Anyway, <laughs> Alex. I have been... I just started this uh, new Korean drama called Sung Kyung Kwan Scandal, uh, which scribes, I'm very sorry, I will provide you the spelling for that. Uh, so you don't have to uh, struggle to find it on Google. I will tell you how to spell that. Uh, it is a Korean drama set in the Joseon era uh, about a young, which is like medieval Korea, uh, about a young woman who 
is from a poor family and she goes in disguise as her brother from time to time Mm. to sell books that she's copied out to a bookseller um, and occasionally to do the homework of (laughs) local university students. Uh, And she... uh, they they need more money because there's this evil guy who is uh, calling in a debt on her family. And so she has to make a lot of money very quickly. So the uh, bookseller says that he can set her up to uh, basically take one of the merit exams mm. in place of uh, someone who wants to pass because she's super fucking brilliant. Long story short, she accidentally gets enrolled in the university herself (laughs) because she, like, passes the merit exam with flying colors and the king is like, you need to go study and then be a government minister for me. And she's like, fuck, shit, damn it. Uh." (laughs) Um, So she goes in in disguise still as a boy because if she's found out, she'll get killed. Um, And everyone around her proceeds to have gay panic or at least bisexual (laughs) panic. Uh... Whereas she as well is also having some panic of her own, sometimes bisexual panic and sometimes just straight up regular old panic because she's always like two inches away from being discovered. I've been meaning to watch that series for ages. I had a couple of friends who got into it years and years ago and would just like post beautiful pictures of the costumes and people Uh making hilarious faces at each other. I was like, oh, I should should watch this. It looks really fun. It's very funny. It's very cute. Uh, I'm enjoying it quite a lot so far. Uh, I'm also in the middle of a Lois McMaster Bujold novella, The Flowers of Vashnoi, which is all about Ekaterin because we love Ekaterin so much. Uh, And that has science and uh, radioactivity, eating beetles and all sorts of great shit. And finally, the crown jewel is that two days ago, I binge watched the miniseries of Good Omens which I have been waiting for for no lie, 15 years. It was amazing. (laughs) Uh, I know that you two haven't uh, watched it yet, so I won't go into much detail, but it was a fantastic adaptation. I'm really happy with it. And I do have one thing to say, which you may be surprised to hear this. There is only one unproblematic stage magician, (laughs) and it is Aziraphale. I've watched the first half, and as soon as it hit yes. the stage magician, oh. I was like, oh no, oh, oh no, Alex is going to <laughs> No, actually, I wasn't mad. And I, I, I was like, why am I not <laughs> mad at this? There's two reasons why. One, because the show is clearly framing it as people who do stage magic are dorks and nerds <laughs> and should be made fun of. Two, and one one a Crowley is right there making fun of him the whole time and going, please God, no, don't do it, no, 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 no. Uh, and number two, I think it's actually the fact that Aziraphale is totally capable of doing those things by actual real magic and is choosing not to. And he's just really bad at it. And he's just really bad at it. And for some reason, that makes it okay. He is, he is the only unproblematic stage magician. Uh, I, I'm glad that you guys both knew that I would have strong <laughs> feelings about it. But hopefully my feelings are sort of surprising and unexpected. Uh, before we continue, though, we do want to uh, remind everyone who's listening. Uh, you have about a month left to finish your Hugo ballots. Hugo voting closes on Wednesday, July 31st, which is also coincidentally the day of the episode 40 extravaganza. Uh, so if you still have some things on the ballot to read or to investigate, 
uh, hurry and do that because we have such a great yes. slate this year. There's some really amazing things. Uh, and I'm excited to talk about them. Let's have an episode. So the way we're going to run this is each of us is going to introduce slash start the discussion of two of the six, yep. because as we told you in our intros, not all of us have read all of the books. So Calculating Stars is our <gasps> first book. So The Calculating Stars by Mary Robinette Kowal is the first of a planned duology called the Lady Astronaut series. The second one, I believe, is coming out later this year. I thought it was year, already October-ish? out was that? Really? I thought it I came thought out, it was really coming out soon after. Oh, maybe, maybe it had just like even faster than I thought. Yep. There we go. <laughs> well, the second one is called The Fated Stars. It may or may not be Quantum out. Book. And, and this is an alternate history of space flight. Yes, and it begins in 1952, where a meteorite crashes into the ocean, causes a great amount of death and destruction, and incidentally kicks off an extinction event climate change catastrophe, which is not topical not in, in any the way. I don't know why you would bring that up. <laughs> yes. So this is a book about a quick acceleration of the American spaceflight project in order to start the process of colonizing the rest of the solar system and get people off Earth. If I may. Macy, yes. do you have something to say? This is, in short, the one woman's quest to yeet humanity off of the space, off into space. Oh my god! I was waiting for that <laughs> word to make an appearance. Thank you, Macy. <laughs> Thank you, Macy. Listen, she's real enthusiastic about yeeting. There is a lot of mathematical yeeting in this book, or at least the maths of potential yeeting. Are we done? Can we? We're never can we done. Move on. Continue. <laughs> People thought that we did this joke to death in the space we opera episode, but no, no we did we not. Have we can still now. <laughs> we have some more jokes to wring out of this one word. It's a great word. So as as Macy said, it is one woman's quest, and the woman in, in question is called Elma, and she is a mathematician. So she's like one of the human calculators. Which, if you've seen the movie or read the book Hidden Figures, you'll know mm, that so good. You'll know that a lot of the women doing the mathematics behind the spaceflight were women who essentially sat there and did it all by yep. hand. And so Elma is a mathematical brilliant genius whose husband is one of the uh, chief rocket engineers. Mm -hmm. And so she, they both get involved in the spaceflight program and Elma's strongest desire is to become an astronaut herself and so it is about her pushing against all of the strictures and oppressions and prejudices of the time to try and get women onto the astronaut training program and i appreciated that it does a lot with the intersectionality of identity and oppression that was present in the mm -hmm. 50s and 60s in america so elma is a jewish woman uh, a lot of the friends that she has who are co-calculators and who are also ex-world war mm -hmm. ii pilots like elma is are people of color and obviously they face a lot more in the way of obstacles in trying to get their skills recognized and get onto the training program there's a lot to do with mental mm -hmm. health it's really there's a really good depiction of the ways in which elma um, manages or doesn't manage her anxiety and how that interacts with her desire to get onto the space program but if she's taking anti-anxiety medication is that seen as you know an obstacle that will make her mm. unfit and, but she needs the medication because she's become this unwilling face of a certain movement. And so she has to make a lot of speeches in front of cameras, which she hates. Right. And I think this is an amazing novel. I was really, really, really enjoying it all the way through. I'm going to start throwing it at my family members because I think they'll like it as well. It just does, it does its brief incredibly well. 
and it's really satisfying. And I think that, um, Alex, I don't know if you've read this one or had a chance to yet, but... I haven't read this one yet, no. I think you would really like some of the ways that Elmer's uh, persona as the Lady Astronaut, um, which is used for publicity, basically, to enhance the space Mm -hmm. program, she kind of accidentally falls into this role. And then does a lot of like Girl Scout camp stuff and like encouraging other like younger women to come up and to believe that they can work on this and that the world can be saved in this way. There's a lot of like propaganda and chant Mm. bullshit. Nice, nice. You know I'm down for some chant bullshit. Yeah, because she starts resenting but also leaning into this persona of the lady astronaut. Like she can be less anxious. Because it constrains her but it also gives her power. But is the power hers or is it in the hands of the people who are using her to do this thing. It's yep. all super yep. chewy. Yeah, yeah. and it's full of very enraging white men who you really just yes. want to punch in the face. And like this sort of insidious sexism of even when women do get chosen for the space program, the ways in which they're treated compared to the male trainees and the yep. fact that their training exercises are set up as publicity stunts. They have to wear bikinis yep. to do their escape from a spacecraft underwater exercise. And the people running it are basically told, look, they're not going to do it. Just set, you know, set it up and go through the motions. We'll just have the cameras here looking at them being dumped into a large tank of cold water in their bikinis. Yeah. So, yes, if you feel like being enraged and watching a woman fight <laughs> dramatically against the patriarchy, that's a good aspect nice, of it. Nice. Uh, the yes. next yeah. novel on the slate that we're talking about today is Record of a Spaceborn Few by J- Becky Chambers, uh, which is, I believe, the third book in the series. But it, I think it functioned pretty well as a standalone. I haven't read the the other books yet, uh, but I found myself mm-hmm. understanding everything that was going on. The wonderful thing that I that really tickled me about this novel is that it doesn't have a plot. Like, there's no plot in this book. Uh, and But it's still really, really compelling because it does some amazing character work. It's basically, there's five point of view characters, and they're fairly even, evenly distributed throughout the book. And I didn't have any problem whatsoever in remembering who was who and who was doing what and why, what was important to them and where I had left them several chapters ago with the last piece of their story. And yeah, so super strong character Mm -hmm. work. And I think that it is a very worthy thing to include on the Hugo ballot. But like the fact that it is so strongly, I'm going to use the word literary here, because in in kind of a weird Mm -hmm. way, because literary fiction often doesn't do as much with plot. It is often much more about those deep character studies whereas genre fiction Mm -hmm. tends to you know want people to have plots and i think that this is a really interesting insight onto where the genre is at right now and where it is moving forward yeah really fantastic Uh, so the first book in this series was what was its name long way to a small angry planet Yes, and one of the things I really enjoyed in that was some of the um, different alien species. And it felt a little bit like what we were talking about from Farscape Mm. a little while back. There's these different species and they do work in different ways. They have different approaches to gender and sexuality and relationships and life in general. And I was wondering if there were any um, cool aspects around that in this one as well. Yeah, they do some... There's several other alien species represented and one of the really cool things is that at the beginning of every section of this book there is Mm -hmm. a excerpt from kind of a 
research paper or kind not really a research paper but there is this alien anthropologist who has come to visit the humans in their their <laughs> space fleet and is writing about them for oh. people back home and sort of explaining yes. like why they are the way that they are and how they came to be this way and it's a way of explaining it to the reader but it's really really interesting to see humans from an outside perspective it's like the Tumblr post. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The Tumblr post about like humans being the space orcs and <laughs> <laughs> or hu- humans being like you must have a human in your group because they will pack bond with everything. Anything. Anything. <laughs> yeah. It's true. They pack bond um, with robots. But this this book does an especially great job with uh representation of uh gender and sexuality. Mm-hmm. Uh there is a normalized use of a gender neutral pronoun uh g i think g gier yeah spelled with an x also like a really interesting thoughts about who we are as a culture and how why we choose to continue the way that we do and what sort of things make us choose something different Mm -hmm. uh why people stay with this fleet uh and live on these these uh, spaceships which have been which were built generations ago when people first left Earth, even though they're kind of dingy and falling apart and not nearly as nice as what the rest of the the solar or the oh. rest of the universe has. Um, there's other alien species out there who have planets, who have colonies, who have settlements, and there are a lot of humans who have now left the fleet to go live on planets again. But there's a lot of people who are sticking with the ships that they were born and raised on Mm -hmm. that their ancestors were born and raised on and one of the highlights of the book um is this quote our species doesn't operate by reality it operates by stories cities cities are a story money is a story space was a story once a king tells us a story about who we are and why we're great and that's enough to make us go kill people who tell a different story Mm -hmm. uh and it's this archivist talking to a 17 year old boy who she kind of wants to to take as an apprentice. And it's also some chant bullshit. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> it really, really is. So yeah, it's a fantastic book. Highly recommend. I, can I ask you about this other dot point yes. that you have written here? And I quote, two old lesbians go for a ride on a space roller you coaster? Because bracket. that sounds like something wifes. I would you, be into. Bra- yeah, you left out the bracket. Two brackets. old lesbians, open brackets, wives, close brackets, wifes go so on a ride on a space player. roller coaster. Yeah. They they are they are old lesbians who are married and they had a date night because things are stressful and it's good to get out of the house and have fun together sometimes. Yep, yep. And there's this wonderful line and so like the the pilot of this recreational space shuttle <laughs> thing that goes on these it's sort of like the um what does the thing that Han Solo does in in Star Wars uh the Kessel run through the like the asteroid field. Yeah. It's like shoom, 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 you know, uh, but for fun and recreation. <laughs> oh, that reminds me of jet boating in New Zealand, where they have boats yeah. that take you around these like rivers really close to the rocks yeah. on either side. Yep, yep. Yep, Humans exactly like that. Enjoying mortal towel. Yeah. <laughs> and it's so funny because the, the lesbians look at each other and like, they're like, hey, the pilot's not paying attention. We could totally just make out right now. <laughs> <laughs> that seems like a Great waste fun. of a Kessel run. <laughs> Well, you know, hey. uh, they've they've been on it several dozen times before. Uh, but yeah, fantastic book. Highly recommend. Cool. Yes. And next up is the book by Rebecca Rowanhorse, which is called Trail of Lightning. And the back cover copy describes this book as post-apocalyptic, which it is, but it's not 
a part of what I would call the post-apocalypse genre. Mm. It's, to me, it's an urban fantasy. Um, which is hilarious because there are no urbans in it anymore. Uh, <laughs> like, they got a bit soggy. There's no herbs. Can we call, can we call it an ex-urban fantasy? Post-urban. Post-urban. There we are. Carl okay. Urban. Um, I'm going to wave it at you because the cover is very shiny and I'm dropping things on my desk. So Alex is going to be mad at me about my audio. I'm sorry. Yep. I'm already Ooh, mad. That's that is fair. shiny. Like quite it's, literally shiny. It's, uh, so d- darling listeners, um, the the cover is from Saga Press, the same as Alex's. Oh, and yep. Saga Press love them some foil. Saga Press consistently makes books that are beautiful physical objects yes. as well as really good stories. Like you say Saga Press, I am not surprised that Saga Press gave <laughs> that book such a beautiful, beautiful cover. But they do great work. Let me tell you about this book. Uh, the... The back cover copy reads, while most of the world has drowned beneath the sudden rising waters of a climate apocalypse, Dineta, formerly the Navajo reservation, has been reborn. Which is true, but this is also a book about a super-powered young woman punching monsters in the throat with knives. We're into that. Right, we're into that. In this house, we stand it. But you see why I'm calling it urban fantasy? Because it got a lot of conversation with things like Buffy or Mm. um, Lost Girl. Mm -hmm. There's loads of weird monsters and humans with weird abilities and possibly feathers. But only when you view them through a particular like way of seeing things with a particular like potion over your eyelids. Mm -hmm. So it's... um, And there's like these cool underground cage fights that they go to in the like last act um and all sorts of like post-apocalyptic um settings right you have lots of um sort of camp towns and cars that are running that have been like modified to run on alcohol rather than gasoline so the apocalypse has only been i think 15 20 years in the past it's fairly recent Okay. Um so they've kind but they've of... had a little bit of time to like recover. Exactly. And what had happened was that the I believe it was the native spirits or gods had built a giant wall around the res and kind of protected their peoples from the yeah. chaos of the of the rising waters. Here's the thing as well. For Native Americans, the apocalypse happened like 200 years ago. Like in real time. Yes, this is yeah. another apocalypse. They're yeah. used to these, I guess. Um but also part of what happened with the apocalypse was that it began to reawaken clan powers in mm. some members of the various tribes. So based on your ancestry and where your parents were from, you might get particular powers. And our hero or heroine, Maggie, um, gets basically the power to be um, extremely strong and fast and see how to kill things and or people. So she gets Buffy powers. And she also gets a very pretty young man to follow her around. I was about to ask, does she get to make out with anybody? Because that's important during the post-apocalypse. It's very important. She gets a very pretty young man who she is very suspicious of and refuses to make out with for most of the book. We love a slow burn. Because we love a slow burn. Um, We love a slow burn. Give the people what they want. A very slow burn. Yes. Yes. And also she's like just at the beginning of the book, like a few months out from a really traumatic breakup with her mentor mentor slash lover Mm. so it's like healing from that and learning to trust again and then of course um that goes entertainingly that's that's on my kindle i am lining it up to read very soon it moves very quickly it's a very clean like the prose style is very clean and quick 
Um, it's as far as possible from a Vandermeer post-apocalypse book. One thing I found really interesting and cool was that Maggie has these superpowers that are around uh, power and violence, and the boy, Kai, has superpowers around healing and having a silver tongue. Oh, I love that. Right? So it really kind of flips the gender stereotypes. Yeah, yeah, like the, the healing and silver tongue kind of stuff that's very female coded in fantasy usually yes um that's really yeah. cool he he's super awesome i like him and it's full of mythology and language and people who are native american and it's a really awesome book and people should go read it and it's the first in a series i believe so yes um it says first of the sixth world Ooh. okay Good, good uh, so if you enjoy title. it, there will be more of it. Yes. More punching. Excellent. <laughs> Always. So the next book we're going to talk about is like uh, the Becky Chambers book. This one is the third in a series. So this is the third book in the Machineries of Empire series by Yoon Ha Lee. And this one is called Revenant Gun. So the first two in this series are Nine Fox Gambit and Raven Stratagem. Mm-hmm. Both of those were also nominated for the Hugo and as well as nebulas and locuses and many, many other things. So this is a very well-allorted series. I think Macy and I have read all of it. I got 75% through because I, darling listeners, decided that in the past week I would attempt to read three of the six books because I'm smart. (laughs) But you've read the other two I read the two that were my job to do, and I've read the other two in this series. Okay, so The Machineries of Empire is a science fiction series that is sort of a lovely mishmash of military sci-fi and space empire and space opera and mathematics, which is why Macy loves it it. dearly. And I also love it. Mathematic. Yes, so the mathematics is magic, but it's also religion, question mark? Yes, it's a lot of like people's beliefs warping reality. So it's very full of chant bullshit. In that sense. Yes. There's a lot of chant bullshit on this on this slate. Yeah, there there is. So the technology in this military space empire is based on the calendar. And so there is mathematical manipulation of the calendar and it only works as long as the population all agree that this is the calendar they are working from. So if you are doing what they call, what's it like, strange effects or exotic, exotic effects, then you are working off a heretical calendar. Well... Um, specifically when we say calendar, we're referring more to like, think of it as saint days that have to be celebrated, uh, like rituals that have to be performed, uh, and belief systems yes. that have to be entered into rather than just it's Monday, the 17th of March, which is probably mm-hmm. not a day. Um, yeah, the calendar is more or less the religious yeah, system. Yeah, right. And I think that the exotics are fine in the normal calendar, but there's like, you can have different exotics if you warp the calendar and this is really bad if you're in charge of a space empire that i don't know relies on the normal exotics of the normal calendar for their spaceships to work Mm -hmm. yes and some of the normal calendar involves bloody sacrifice of people to keep things working which is not ideal yay (laughs) so the main characters in this series are um kel cheris who is a military officer in this giant space army uh, and in the first couple of books, things get very messy when she more or less is coerced into agreeing to have the spirit of a traitorous <laughs> military genius general downloaded into her head. 
And then things get complicated <laughs> from there. So Cheris is one of the main characters and the other is this general, um, Shuas Jadao. 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 Who is a wonderful, wonderful uh, sort of Machiavellian general genius in the best tradition. In some of these books. In some of these books. In so this Revenant, one. In this one, Revenant Gun. Due to various shenanigans in the first two books, <laughs> in this one it goes full amnesia trope. Amazing. And Jadel wakes up in the body that he should have, which is that of a forty-four-year-old general. But the brain is that of well, he's like seventeen. Seventeen. A seventeen-year-old military a cadet. Who disaster gay? <laughs> who a does disaster not gay. Does not remember any of the shit that he got up to later in his life, including the thing that got him branded like a dangerous traitor and got his consciousness like shoved into a little box. Yep. To be consulted Hannibal Lecter style when oh, they yes. needed somebody to do things, and he is being handled by his ex boyfriend. Amazing. Yep. Yep. Oh, it's Quote, so unquote, good. Handled. Quote unquote handled. Um, and these books have got a lot of wonderful world building around the different uh, groups. Not necessarily. I'm trying to think of how to re- how to describe it. it. Is it is a taxonomy of sorts? They are ha- there are houses that have different roles in this society, and all, all of the world building around the leaders of these and the people in it. And there's a lot of very small, very recognizably human characters, even though the stakes are very empire size. And there's a lot of focus on food and tea and the small ways in which people annoy one another and love one another. It's really lovely. And I think that Yoon has a huge gift for this, which is you'll be in the middle of like a tense battle scene and Jadao will want to like look at one of his subordinate officer's screens to see what they're doing. And there will be just like a a three word like side note, something about like their cat that will make this person into a whole entire human that like even in this military situation, every soldier is an individual. Which is kind of thematic because the whole revolution in this trilogy is around, in part, the fact that the Kell soldiers have been basically um, psychically programmed to be physically incapable of refusing orders. Yes. And that's one of the things that they break out of when they break out of the traditional calendar is give them back free will. And so it's very interesting to me that uh, Yoon has made certain that even when they have no free will, you're very clear that they're individuals. And that kind of brings home how bad it is that they have no choice. Mm -hmm. And the second book is more or less all about that. Because it's about uh, Cheris, who I I suppose we can kind of spoil this. Everyone is assuming that Cheris's body is being steered by Jadao. Except, po- spoilers, possibly that's not what's happening. Possibly she's just faking Jadao really well. <laughs> um, and so Terrace slash Jadao goes off and more or less adopts slash abducts a giant cruiser and like part of this army for themselves. And the reason it works is because they're like, oh, oh, Jadao, well, he's a general. Shit, yes. we all have to do what general, we're told. Ranking. And even though they are, they are you know, essentially committing treason and acting against what they consider to be the best interests of their empire, they're like, well, we've been told to do it by a general, so we just have to <laughs> sulkily suck it up and glare at him the whole time, but we'll do it. There's just so many books in this book. There's lots of books in this book and in this trilogy. But there's also a, like, pattern of 17-year-old Jadao's, like getting 
nearby to a hot boy and like completely losing any sensibility and like being like I have all these strategies I'm going to oh but could I touch your face <laughs> yeah Janelle is presented as this military genius who can solve any problem and his two weaknesses are one mathematics which is very inconvenient and why they have to pair him with Keras to get Who's anything a done mathematician and two, hot boys, hot which boys. Is also leads to some Such very bad decision-making on his part. Uh, and in book two, he breaks all sorts of taboos and like completely royally fucks himself over to, yeah. Uh. <laughs> what a great <laughs> series. <Yeah. laughs> There's a lot that happens in these books. I, I, I recommend say that them. he's bi, but he's like a Kinsey five. Mm. There's like one or two women over the course of a look. So like disaster is earned. But also I feel like he imprinted really hard on hot boys on one particular one particular person quite early that's true and, and just sort of has orbited them helplessly through most of his life but also very importantly this whole series and particularly this last book is full of adorable robots that have like fandoms that's very important why are we just now bringing this up and they're some tiny, of the- that's right the little servitors yeah, and Keras the- gets like involved in their society yeah Cheris like actually thinks of them as people unlike most other people in this empire and like talks to them and learned their like machine binary code language to talk to them directly and so in the last book she in this book we're talking about here she uses a lot of their like secret paths to stay hidden and work uh, in places that humans won't look for her but also one of the point of views in this last book is a servitor called Hemiola, whose hobby is composition and making fan vids. Amazing. Yes. Amazing. Yep. There is one point at which Hemiola considers that they probably shouldn't cut together a fan vid of the enemy ex-boyfriend dancing romantically with Shadow no! because that would probably be a bad idea. No. Um, well, I feel like this one now has to be like next on my TBR file because that sounds delightful it's delightful but also there's a lot of really dark shit that we've kind of glossed over oh sure yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. there's a lot of like horror terrors yeah yeah um, yeah also you might want to look up uh trigger warnings for these books if yes especially definitely. for this one um if what jen told us in slack chat today is correct um yes. so yeah just uh, be mindful of that there's some dark stuff it's not all uh adorable bots apparently oh no these are about like terrible manipulative people at war trying to kill one another yeah. and with yeah. exceedingly of, of... like cthulian levels of horror like cosmic horror yeah, in people their weapons. die in horrible ways because yeah. of the, some of the, these exotic effect weaponry so, so yes you check for yeah. yourself friends yeah yeah well let's move yeah. on to something a book that is made 1000 percent of pure glitter and g- like uh-huh. foil and iridescent <laughs> sparkles and fancy but slightly tattered lace. Uh, the book is, of course, a Space Opera by Cat Valente. If you have been with us uh, for a while, dear listeners, you probably heard me screaming about how good this book was when it first came out last year. It is still incredibly good. It is basically Eurovision in space. That's how it was sold. <laughs> yes. That's how it was pitched. It's is edited by uh, my editor, Nava Wolf, who is also on the Hugo Ballot for Best Editor. I think we should vote for her, but I'm biased, so that's all I'm going to say the there. important question, 
Is the physical cover glittery? It is gold. It has like foil. It has the foil yes. effect. Yes, because See, Saga Saga has foil. Because Just yes, saying. this is this is another Saga press book, of course. Uh, and they do love their gold foil. If they can make it shiny <laughs> and glittery, they will. Saga press colon the Magpie House. The Magpie House. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and so this is a book. The main character is sort of this David Bowie, Freddie Mercury, Prince kind of figure. He is a former rock star from back in the day and very like gender fuck kind of individual. And he is so badass and he is absolute, his fashion is absolute goals. Like, what's so my you've God. described him as a badass, and my like entire no. memory of him from reading that book no. is like he's like, a disaster. He is, a disaster. He is a disaster. He's he's a disaster. When I say badass, I mean in his fashion sense and That's fair. in like, sure. yeah. Um, but no, he is a disaster. Uh, the Earth makes first contact with aliens, and in this this book, the the universe has recovered from a cataclysmic war, which is sort of a, it basically, so Eurovision, right? I have to like sidetrack and give you a bit of history of Eurovision. If you don't know what that is, that is the Eurovision Song Contest. It's something that happens every year, dear listeners. If you are American, everyone else, you can go like get a drink of water while I explain this. Um, Americans are the only one who doesn't, who don't know what this this is. Americans shout about it a lot more than most Europeans I know. For well, reference. I'm glad that we are sort of getting on the bandwagon because it's great. <laughs> so Eurovision yeah. was started in the wake of World War II to sort of rebuild relations between the countries who had been at war and kind it's of... It's a proxy war with pop music, a, right? A proxy war with pop music, yeah. And, and we're all <laughs> pretending it's just sort of like happy and shiny, but really it's uh, pretty... People take it very seriously. Uh, My country has been last for like 10 years in a row. Australia takes it so seriously that we have basically elbowed our way in, despite being not in Europe. No, I think it's very difficult to be less in Europe than Australia is. Yeah, but Australia has been obsessed with Eurovision for so long and so loudly and so warmly and enthusiastically that eventually they were like, do you want to send a guest artist? And so we did that a couple of years in a row, and then they're like, "Oh, fine." Just, <laughs> like just, you guys are, you guys are clearly <laughs> taking this so seriously, and like sending such top quality, like peak Eurovision kind of stuff. We might as oh, well yeah. let you. We compete. know, we know what we're doing. It's you know what you're doing. To get more peak Eurovision than this year's Iceland, though. True. Well, I don't know. Like Australia sent a really, really good one, but we're getting off track. Let's go back to space opera. The bondage um, boys. The bondage boys. Yes, they were bondage boys. God, Iceland. <laughs> God bless Iceland. Really. Uh, so, so. Uh, uh, in in this book, uh, the universe has uh, recovered from a cataclysmic war, uh, which is kind of a parallel for World War II. And to recover from that and also to determine who counts as people and who counts yep. as meat, uh, they have decided to make every new species that they come in contact with compete in this song contest. And you send a song and all you have to do is score not worst. And... If you do that, then you clearly have some, shall we say, deep literary merit in your culture, uh, and you are not declared meat, and no one is allowed to commit absolute devastating genocide against your planet. Woo! Woo! Hooray! Yay! Uh, So humanity makes first contact with the aliens, and the aliens are like, all right, who are you going to send to this song contest? You have to prove that your people not meat, and... uh, 
almost every they're like we have studied your pop culture we have a list of people who we suggest that might might be good candidates uh and all of them are either dead or unavailable except for decibel jones and the absolute zeros uh who get sent to this uh intergalactic uh song contest and it is full of sparkles and just so fucking fantastic on so many levels I really feel like Kat Valente is an amazing, amazing writer, but she leveled up like five levels with this book because the voice is just incredible. Um, There's some sentences which are so complicated that I had to read them out loud to make sense of them, but like in a good way, you know? (laughs) I think like by weight, this book is maybe only 40% plot. Like you could probably summarize the plot quite quickly. Then it has 40% incredibly glittery world building where yep. it just describes various alien races and how they make music. Yep. And then 30% Douglas Adams homage. Yep. There's also like like these sentient wormholes <laughs> which yeah, there's yeah. A, it's a whole bunch of stuff. It's great. Yeah. Great book. And great I, book. I did appreciate with this book that it is such colourful science fiction. Oh, when yeah. When science fiction can occasionally be a little bit drab, even when it's in book form. And mm. it's trying to be gritty and it's all about the cleanness of space or the grit of space. This is about the glitter of space. It sort of lives in my mind in the same hole as the fifth element in terms of mm. the sheer balls-to-the-wall weird colour of actual space it's jupiter ascending whisper shout boy yes 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 yep. yeah it's like yep. you took the, the aesthetics of jupiter ascending removed all of the like weird sad killing and just added a lot of music yep such a good book i really really enjoyed it quite a lot and for our sixth book this is a book that none of us have ever heard of before mm? not at all what what book could this possibly what be book could it possibly never heard be? of never discussed Nope, never built an entire episode around it's Spinning Silver. Ah, uh, Spinning Silver. Spinning so Silver. Ah, oh, this book. Okay, so this is the book that, darling listeners, if you haven't been with us for a while, way, way back in season one, we staged a daring heist at the Nebulas. We did. We did a have year a wonderful ago. heist. We staged a daring heist in order to obtain an advanced copy to yeet at our Australian. We all three got advanced copies of Spinning Silver, didn't we? Yes. We did uh, a great my job. My agent lent me one and then we got more at the Nebulas and yep. it was great. Anyway, that's not really about the book per se. So this is a fairy tale tapestry, I think I I think at it. some point we should mention the author's name. Yes, this is by Naomi Novik. Uh, that <laughs> of might course. help. <laughs> Yay. We're just assuming that everyone in the universe has read and loved this book as well, much as we do. I'm also assuming that everyone who's clicked on to listen to this podcast presumably can see the tentpole list, uh, which is going to be the longest tentpole list we've ever had. Because yep. six. Um, so this is by Naomi Novik, and it's in conversation with her previous book, Uprooted, um, in that they are very clearly marketed as being similar types of books, but they are not actually connected. So this is a book that sprang from a retelling of the Rumpelstiltskin fairy tale, which she had as a short story in one of Nava Wolf's anthologies. Um, the Starlet, Starlet Wood. Starlet Wood, I yep. believe. Yes, Starlet Wood. And... This is a retelling in which a young Jewish moneylender brags in the deep forest about spinning, about turning silver into gold and gets called on her bluff by a desperate fairy king who badly needs gold to stave off the fall of his kingdom. And 
she is given the quest to turn six coins of silver into six coins of gold and she achieves this through smart jewel making um and pays back the fairy and so he challenges her again and a third time and after this is forced to make her his queen much yep. to both of their dismay <laughs> no one's really into this like no, no one actually this. wants this but no, there's nothing like a good arranged marriage trope to build a book around yes. and this does it beautifully it's actually really there true. are two arranged there marriage are two tropes arranged marriages it's beautiful because the thing that i've left out is that that is only one of at least three main plot threads i would say i'd say um, three so yeah We've got like some Hansel and Gretel shit. We've got some Russian uh, fairy tale with the demon. Mm-hmm. Um, and this book takes six points of view and they're all first person points of view. And the voice in each of them is so distinct and the setting is so distinct that you know instantly within a sentence or two which point of view you've suddenly been dropped into. Yes. And it really is like the way that these stories are interwoven. It is one book even though it's sort of three stories, the way they start and diverge and the paths come back together is really an amazing work of craft. Oh, yeah. And this is, I think, the only, what we would think of as classical fantasy yes. book on the list. I was if going to I think note that. Yeah, I think you're right in that um, I haven't obviously haven't read Trailer of Lightning, but from everything you've said about it, it does sound like it's solidly within one of those genres of post-apocalyptic mm-hmm. slash urban fantasy, whereas this is very much... Not straight up fantasy, fantasy, I'd say, but very, very based fairy tale fantasy. Mm-hmm. Yes, fairy tale fantasy. I do think that's very interesting. There's no epic fantasy and no high fantasy in this set of books. It's interesting how fashions how fashions change. Now, you wanted to have a a bit of a conversation about the use of point of view in this book versus in Record of a Spaceborn View because they're both yeah. doing some interesting stuff with multiple points of view. Uh, Spinning Silver has, I think you counted six points of yes, view, right? Yes, there were six. Yeah. I was wondering if you had any thoughts, because I think you're the only one of us who've read both. Yeah, so they both do such an amazing job with switching points of view. Since Record of a Spaceborn Few is all in third person, mm. uh, it is a little bit harder to see the voice changing because it's mm-hmm. kind of like that same it doesn't really third person. To. Yeah, yeah, same third person voice throughout. Um, but just the fact that since there's very little overlap and connection between the five point of view right. characters, they all touch on each other once in a while, but they don't have significant significant overlap mm-hmm. like Spinning mm-hmm. Silver does. Um, I mean, and since they don't have a common plot to tie them together either, you know, that's a, <laughs> that's a struggle. Um, so it is amazing that um, Record of a Space Born Few is kind of on par with Spinning Silver in terms of the point of view stuff that it's doing. Mm -hmm. Um, considering like how different they're doing it. Um, Like they're doing two completely different things, but they're linked by this one kind of tool that they share, which is the multiple points of view. I think it it feels almost like from what you've been describing, that Record of a Spaceborn View is kind of a character vignette setup. Yeah, exactly. More so. I think that's super cool. I might have to have a look at it. But I think I will stand by the fact that I'm 
most impressed by the fact that Naomi managed to take these exceedingly dispersed points of view and make it a one like a plot like an actual fantasy plot yeah that ties together yeah. even though you're totally right at many points in the book the points of view are completely divergent at one point you know Miriam ends up in the fairy kingdom for a while that's the main character and the and Wanda and her brother in the deep woods and the princess the Tsarina is in various palaces dealing with the fact that her husband is a demon who wants to eat her yep and they're just completely separate. But then it all comes back together and it all has this weight and the pacing continues to build in the same sort of three-act structure that we expect, even though it's been fragmented like that. Yes. Yeah. I, I'd like to look at how point of view is handled in some of the other books as well, because mm. they are very, very diverse in terms of that. So is Trail of Lightning first person? From what the way yes. you describe it, I'm assuming it is, because urban fantasy yep. quite commonly is first person. And Calculating Stars is also first person, which is mm. quite important because you're so right. close to Elma and you get a bit of her, you experience her anxiety and the extent to which she's an unreliable narrator about yep. her own psychological state through that yep. first person point of view. And then you've got Space Opera, which is an omniscient narrator who's taken a whole bunch of drugs. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then I really do want to talk about um, how Yoon uses point of view in all of the books in uh, the Machineries of Empire trilogy, uh, which is very kind of, I've termed it as like hive mind. There's just so many little snippets of points of view. You might get like three pages from one character that you'll never see again, mm. at, who might then die horribly instantly. And the only purpose was to die horribly. And it's just a totally different, again, way of using point of view because you're not necessarily meant to be getting attached to the point of view character. Mm, okay. Right, they're almost reporting to you, like uh, giving you a military report or... Mm. Whereas Pratchett does that as well, I think. Mm. It's a really good effect in the Discworld, in the Discworld books. That's you get true. a lot of those little snatches of maybe two pages worth of one person just to show you their role in this bigger narrative. Yeah, and I've been thinking about this a bunch because of, like, the book that I just finished is kind of the first time I've ever really tried to do multi-POV. So it's something that I'm trying to learn more of and figure out, you know, how do you make a difference in the narration style and make it clear that these people have different uh, viewpoints on the world, but still tell a connected, contiguous narrative. Hmm. And there has definitely been a fashion in fiction of, of most kinds, I think, but definitely in genre fiction mm -hmm. for this kind of close third. Right. Um, limited narration and especially for picking one or two characters who are going to be your entry points and your point of view characters and what yeah exactly what Yoon Lee does with multiple voices I think is something that's starting to come back into fashion mm -hmm. we're starting to see less of that you have to have one and it's interesting because I think YA is still absolutely in that oh yes one person point of view very often first person unless it's got a strong strong romance side in which case you do see the dual thing a lot as well yeah yeah so romance is still very much usually dual point of view sometimes just one sometimes you only mm -hmm. get one in a romance but usually dual YA is still usually one person's point of view and yeah I'm really interested to see given how much variety there is in this particular slate what we see in the way that this genre goes forward in terms of experimental point of view combinations and structures and obviously you know taking previous winners of the hugo as an example yes um nk jemison's trilogy did some amazing things with point of view oh yeah and oh I gosh yes 
Nora's stuff and Nora was tweeting about this a little bit uh, today, I think, shows you what I think is the most important rule of point of view, which is the story demands the point of view. Like exactly. Any point of view can be a good point of view. There is no hard and fast rule about thou shalt not X, Y, or Z. Yep. But the story, you, you use the point of view that best fits and illustrates the story. Yeah, exactly. It's it's a tool. Um, yep. And like there's there's a time and a place to use a screwdriver versus a <laughs> lathe. Um, and there is a time and a place to use first person versus third. There's some situations where third person is just like going to be the thing that you need. And there's certain situations where there's a specific thing that first person can do that third person cannot do in nearly the same way, which mm -hmm. is to show like the unreliability of a narrator. And I have ranted about this before and I will <laughs> rant about this again into eternity. Yes. And I think some of that is genre convention. Like yeah. sometimes there is value in meeting your reader expectations. Mm hmm. And sometimes there's value in picking up the reader expectations, taking a close look at them and just eating them out the window. Yeah, yeah. So uh, this slate is incredible. It's amazing. There is not one single cis white man on this slate. It's, in it's I don't know how I'm going to pick which one to vote for. All I'm, I'm just like... <laughs> and it's just not stunned. even the one to vote for it's that you have to arrange them in an you have order. To order you order sit there yes. for hours it's just like, like agonizing here. about the slots yeah yeah like how can you possibly put these in order of faves because like there's such amazing amazing diversity of voices and talent and i am just so thankful to be like Look at what we have to pick. Look what we have to pick. What a great problem to have. Yep. yep. <laughs> Absolutely. Hello, everybody. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Be the Serpent, a podcast of extremely, extremely deep literary merit. As you may have noticed, we're all really impressed and excited by the diversity and quality of these novels, and I really do encourage you to go and check out some of the shorter-length works and artworks and related works that appear on the ballot as well. Friends, there is some serious literary merit being celebrated there, and that is, of course, what we're all about. Though we are about other things too, and one of them is world-building. For the next episode, two weeks hence, on July 17th, We'll be doing a nice, chewy, writing craft-focused episode about magical systems. What makes a good one? How can they be used to tell interesting stories? And what happens when the serpents try to build one live during recording? So if you have a friend who might be into that, encourage them to check it out. One of the texts we'll be using as a springboard for our discussion is R.M. Lemberg's story, Geometries of Belonging, a title I really love, by the way, which is available to read online, so we'll link to it in the show notes. Questions? comments, breathless adulations, you can get in touch with us at serpentcast at gmail.com and we're at serpentcast on Twitter and Tumblr. And remember, we also have a fan discord chat, which is linked on the about the show page of the podcast website. If you enjoy the podcast and would like to support us, we do have a Patreon, which you can find at patreon.com slash serpentcast. You can help us pay our darling scribes and get access to some reward tiers. And by the way, You've got our vote, darling listeners, every time. <laughs>